Hello and welcome to Your Employment Matters. I'm Beverly Williams and I'm here to help you navigate your career. This is for anyone who's searching for their dream job or promotion, or perhaps you're just looking to hang on to the job you have. Today's work environments are multi-generational, multi-religious, multinational, multiracial, and multi-gender and multi-gender identity. Add market disruptors like Amazon and Lyft, along with the addition of AI, and it's easy to see why finding and keeping a job is such a challenge. Employment success and even employment survival depend on your ability to adapt. That's why my goal for this 30-minute podcast is to first advocate embracing change and differences, and second, to encourage you to proactively assume responsibility for your career. Get your work week off to a good start by listening to Your Employment Matters every Monday. Find out how to own your career and get the best practices for making your employment matter. Civil and human rights voting rights and social justice have become common topics in the daily discourse of many, if not most Americans these days. As a woman of color who has, in my earlier days, marched and even protested, I don't march anymore. I cry. I wept when I learned of the needless, tragic killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and those whose lives were similarly taken from them before Ms. Taylor and Mr. Floyd. I wept when I visited the Emmett Till exhibit at the African American Museum in the nation's capital. As I said in an earlier podcast, I'm tired of crying. But thanks to the efforts of those who came before me and men like John Lewis and my guests today, I have acquired education, skills, and training that enable me to contribute in other ways. I don't have to march and protest these days. You know that employment matters are the focus of my podcast, but I submit to you that the times and circumstances require something different, and we're going to do something different today. As I said in yet another podcast, I too can and will do more to promote discussions about topics of interest. Today, the topics are civil and human rights and the right to vote. My guest is my dear friend, Wade Henderson, who is the former president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, which was founded as the legislative arm of the civil rights movement. Additionally, Wade Henderson was the head of the Washington Bureau of the NAACP and worked with the American Civil Liberties Union known as the ACLU. Wade Henderson, a graduate of Howard University and the Rutgers School of Law in Newark, New Jersey, go Rutgers, has too many honors and accolades and awards for me to list. However, this November, he will receive the first ever Judith Human Champion of Justice Award for his work in furtherance of disability rights. Welcome, Wade. And thank you so much for joining me. Well, Beverly, thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here with you and your listeners. Well, now, Wade, we've known each other for decades. 
but I've never asked you. And when I thought of inviting you and hoping that you would agree to do this, I realized that as long as we've known each other, I've never asked you how or why you decided to pursue a career in civil and human rights. How did you know that was the right career path for you? Well, Beverly, I'm going to answer that question, but I want to go back to something that you said in your introduction, because I, I think it deserves further exploration. You mentioned that you no longer protest in the way that we once did, in marching in the streets and uh, perhaps raising your voice in protest. And I'm reminded of the thousands of African-American men and women and children thinking of the interracial audiences that have joined the Black Lives Matter movement all across the country since uh, before the death of George Floyd, but George Floyd's murder has spurred a level of engagement and protest, unlike anything we have seen in this country for at least a generation. And I want to stop for a minute and salute that. Uh, because truthfully, without that protest, without the Black Lives Matter protest, and without the effort to shine a light on the injustices of police brutality and the pandemic inequality that we are experiencing collectively, a very little in the way of progress uh, would have occurred. So I want to stop and thank those who, notwithstanding the risk to their personal lives, have chosen to come to the streets, raise their voices in peaceful protest, and using the system that our Constitution provides, First Amendment protections to raise your voice and speak without fear of government retribution, and Fourth Amendment protections to be insulated from illegal search and seizure, change would not have happened. So I think we need to stop for a minute and thank those who engage in the protests that some of us no longer do. Now, I also want to point up something else. Nothing can happen without uh, a press uh, for change. Uh, and that is something that, you know, uh, and even uh, going back uh, many years, but someone who I thought said it so eloquently is James Baldwin. And perhaps you know that James Baldwin is now getting a fresh new look yes. uh, because of uh, his... Uh, the biography uh, that has been filmed, Not Your Negro, and because of the work of Professor Eddie Blau Jr. of Princeton, yes. he's done a new book on, on James Baldwin. And Baldwin once said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And that is precisely where we are, both as a community and as a nation. So I think this is really time to have a serious conversation about uh, where uh, we are. Now, I, I want to go to your question, Beverly, which was, how did I know that a career in civil and human rights was going to be my destiny? And truthfully, I didn't. I, I didn't. But you went to, Miss, if I remember, Wade, you went to Mississippi after law school, didn't you? Yeah, for a short time, I did. But, you know, actually, it, it began for me, Beverly, if you can believe this, uh, with the March on Washington in 1963. Wow. Uh, I was a 15-year-old schoolboy, and uh, I'm from Washington, D.C. And, of course, uh, the atmosphere of the March on Washington at the time 
wasn't entirely as peaceful and romantic uh, as we had seen from the films. The film films. The march itself was incredibly peaceful. And seeing the quarter of a million, primarily African-American men and women, in great dignity coming to Washington to raise their voices for their constitutional rights was something I would never forget. But the atmosphere in Washington, D.C. at the time was a little different because city leadership, all of which was white at the time, and, and most of which opposed this march on Washington, it was unprecedented, this number of uh, African-Americans coming to Washington to sing for their constitutional rights, something the nation had never seen, had scared the bejesus out of local leadership. If you can believe this, local liquor stores were closed. Wow. Newspapers issued all kinds of uh, uh, edicts suggesting that things were going to be violent. And my family, my parents, were concerned about showing up because of that press propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, I defied them, Beverly. I, I went to the march and I was saying to them. And it was a coming-of-age moment for me. And seeing black people in the dignity of that moment expressing their right to be equal was something I would never forget. And having experienced segregation and discrimination firsthand, I won't say it was as violent in Washington, D.C. as it had been in the South, the deeper South, I nonetheless knew the, you know, experience of not being treated quite equally with your white counterparts. And to be frank with you, I didn't like it. I hated it, actually. And I felt that I wanted to be a part of the change that I wanted to see come. So I, I got that experience when I went to Howard University, and I was there uh, during the last half of the 1960s. And Howard was experiencing that great African-American black student revolution and renaissance. And I learned so much from that experience and gained a lot. But it was Rutgers and the experience of, of being a law student at Rutgers, going through the minority student program at that law school, being in Newark, New Jersey, when I came of age in a place that gave me support and encouragement. It was those experiences that ultimately led me to use the law as a tool for social change. And it really cemented my commitment to a life in civil rights, civil and human rights. I never knew that. I'm glad I asked the question because I feel that I, as well as I think I know you, I feel as though I now know you better. But, you know, the young people today, as a young person who would be trying to become a civil and human rights advocate professional to embark on that career, how would they go about doing that way? What would you suggest? Well, you know, Beverly, I hesitate to offer advice to the generations that follow me, in part because uh, they are finding their own way, quite frankly, without uh, necessarily the direction or guidance of their elders. Uh, It is young people who have always been at the forefront of social change. It is young people that pushed the first iteration of the civil rights movement who supported Dr. King. John Lewis was a young man, a teenager when he started following uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and dealt with people like uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian. It was 
uh, people like uh, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwanner, the three young uh, uh, African-American and uh, uh, his Jewish counterparts who were killed uh, in Philadelphia, Mississippi, by trying to organize uh, voting rights. Young people uh, like the four young girls in the Birmingham church that were bombed in 1963. Young people sacrificed their lives for social change. And it is young people that are leading today's uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, we have a new generation of leaders, Beverly, that have stepped forward to take their place uh, at the uh, table of leadership to take us to the next level of our uh, development as a nation and as our community. And I think they're doing quite well without uh, direct guidance uh, from me or others. Now, having said that, I do think it is possible to make a contribution uh, for the betterment of the country, no matter what you do. Now, you could be a lawyer and you could pursue civil rights. And there are many uh, organizations that do that, and civil rights lawyers. I like to think of myself in that category. I make a great contribution to uh, the country as a whole. But whether you are a lawyer or whether you are a first responder, whether you are delivering mail or whether you are working in a factory, uh, you are and can make a contribution no matter what you do. And I think there are many paths, Beverly, to uh, professional uh, work in the civil and human rights movement. And I think it depends in part on your skills and your educational preparation and background. It depends on your interests. But my advice, my advice, is to pursue a career based on your personal passions, what you are most interested in. You should be able to, you know, have a sense of excitement and wonderment about what you're doing professionally. But I also know that regardless of where you are, you can make a contribution. And I think you need to search for a way to do that. It is both the morally right thing to do, but it provides a level of satisfaction that nothing else in your professional life can do. And so that's really my observation for those who come on. I think that's sound advice, Wade. My concern would be that we know that... Uh there are certain skill sets that that some segments of our American population have that um, uh, they work to the detriment of others. There's information that is needed uh, at your fingertips, quite frankly, because other, otherwise you may find yourself, um, as they say, as my father would say, going for the okie doke. You know, if you don't know, if you trust the person and you don't know that you shouldn't, and they sound like someone who sounds like they know what they're talking about, and you are the uninitiated and the uninformed, you understand what I'm saying. We, you don't want to walk in ill-prepared or unprepared. And the question is, how do you prepare yourself, given what you said, and I agree with that, but how do you prepare yourself? You don't have to be a doctor or a lawyer or an Indian chief, but there are certain skill sets that you, I think, would find you in good stead that people who are interested, especially in taking and moving forward in, in the front, the forefront of the movement, um, need to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it is, it's, my observation, Beverly, is that one should not enter 
uh, an area of work necessarily with the assumption you are going to be the leader of yourself. You haven't even wet your uh, feet. But sometimes, wait, let me just say, can I say something, Wade? Sometimes it's not their intention. Sometimes they are enlisted. Sometimes there's, there's someone taps on their shoulders. Sometimes people see something in someone that gra- makes them gravitate to them. And the person may not have stepped out that way, intending to be a leader, but has been anointed so by those willing to follow him or her. I don't know what that person does. I think they have to have a certain skill set so that they can make the contribution that they want to make. You understand what I mean? They've been anointed by their people in the group. They haven't seen themselves as a leader, but they've been anointed by their colleagues. They have exhibited leadership. There's something that the other people have seen in them that makes them want to follow him or her. I want to go back, Beverly, to my earlier point, that no matter what you do, you can find a way to extend leadership and to make a contribution to the moment, the civil and human rights moment in which we find ourselves. Now, let's take a look at professional athletes. I mean, obviously, Colin Kaepernick is someone who we look up to rightly for having had the courage to use his platform to challenge injustice and police brutality in our country and the symbol of him kneeling at the sound of the national anthem not only spurred controversy, it spurred change. It helped leave the way for other professional athletes recognizing the power of their platform and been able to do things that five years ago would have been unimaginable. Take a look at the National Basketball Association. You know, LeBron James and all the players of the NBA have suddenly become the major voices and fulcrum for change uh, using their platforms uh, to make it happen. Uh, Don't forget the people working behind the scenes. Uh, There's a young attorney by the name of Michelle Roberts, an African-American lawyer, brilliant criminal trial lawyer, but who converted her skills to help lead the Players Association in the National Basketball. Association. She is in part behind some of the great change and organized efforts that we see among professional athletes. Think about the fact that in, when Dr. King was killed in 1968, he had joined a demonstration in support of sanitation workers who had a, a, a call at that time saying, I am a man. These were some of the lowest paid workers on the city scale. And unfortunately, there were so few safety protections that a couple of members of the union, the American Federation of, uh, of, State, uh, of State, County, and Municipal Employees, AFSCME, uh, really led the way. Uh, they represented some of the poorest of the poor. Uh, but because they were willing to risk it all by putting their lives on the line in protest, they were able to make change. My only point, Beverly, is that sometimes, sometimes we are anointed uh, to be the voices uh, in a movement. And yes, it comes unexpectedly. But when you are tapped for that role, because people see something in you, 
I'm not sure that you necessarily uh, can prepare for it in the formal sense. Look, we all benefit from education, and I would encourage everyone who is interested in in furthering uh, their uh, advancement in helping to bring about change, pursue getting their education. A high school diploma is essential, whether they go to college or uh, a community college or pick up a trade or a skill, some way of advancing uh, their uh, employment and ultimately their wealth is necessary. Uh, but I would also say that uh, no matter where you are, no matter where you are, you can find a spot in which to make a difference. And I don't want to dwell too much on what is the course of preparation that one needs in order to pursue a formal career as a change agent. I think those skill sets vary, and it depends on the individual and the circumstance. I think that will cover it. I wanted to give people a sense of what they could do if they were of a mind. Yes. Because, well, you know, let me, let me I. Well, let me start with the fact that we are in a moment, a pivotal moment for the black community and for the nation as a whole. We have the most consequential election that this country has faced in. Oh, my God, perhaps uh, in the 20th century, coming up in less than 50 days. The outcome of this election will determine the direction of our country for generations to come. We cannot afford uh, to have this election, uh, first of all, without the influential voice of black voters. Uh, and there is a concerted effort underway to deny the African-American community, its ability to weigh in on this upcoming election. You see it in numerous examples. And let me say, this is not a partisan broadcast, and I'm not here to tout one candidate over another. But I am here to say, watch what people do, not what they say they do. Watch what political leadership does, not what it says it does. And if you watch the two main candidates who are vying for the presidency, uh, President Donald Trump on the one hand and Joe Biden, former Vice President Joe Biden on the other, you see a sharp contrast that speaks volumes of the interests of African Americans. Now, let me just say this. Black people have had historically a challenge in exercising their full rights of citizenship. I'll have to tell your listeners that. You know, just last year, we commemorated the 400th anniversary, the quatrocentennial <laughs> of slavery in this country. The New York Times has published a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, magazine uh, called the 1619 Project. And I would encourage Beverly your listeners to become familiar with that, to uh, go on Google and track it down and check it out. Because the articles that were written in that Pulitzer Prize-winning undertaking are among the uh, easiest to digest, the most informative declaration of how this country came to be what it is today. And you learn of the critical role that slavery played in the building and transformation of this country. You also learn about, of course, the uh, this is a, a copy or an imitation of, of a historic term, but black people have been through their own trail of tears, from slavery mm. to freedom to uh, Reconstruction to Jim Crow, and then to 
the modern civil rights movement. Now, those expressions may not mean much to all of your listeners, brother, but they should know that there is a history of this country that they should become aware of to the extent possible. One of the things I'm doing to try to contribute to that is working on the creation of two national commissions that will focus on uh, what we need as both a country and as a community. One of them is a, a bill called H.R. 40, which will establish a national commission to study whether reparations for African Americans are warranted. That bill is currently in Congress, introduced by Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, a Democrat from Houston, Texas. The other is a bill called H. Conrez 100 to establish a national commission on truth, racial healing, and transformation. And that commission was introduced by Congresswoman Barbara Lee, a Democrat from California. And the focus of that commission is to, of course, uh, provide the country as a whole with a deeper understanding of how we came to be and what we are. I'll give you an example, Billy. Do you remember when uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, planned to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, for uh, a rally? And he was uh, going on an anniversary that means a lot to many black people. Yes. He was going on June, June 19th, 19th, June 19th, 2020. Yeah. So-called Juneteenth. June yeah. And probably Juneteenth, for those of your listeners who don't know it, was the date that uh, African Americans, particularly in Texas and in other far-flung uh, uh, parts of the country during the Civil War, 1865, were notified that the war had ended. And they celebrated that day long after the fall and, uh, and, and uh, the uh, surrender of the Confederacy uh, to the uh, to the Union Army in, in April of 1865. This happened on June 19th and became known as Juneteenth. Well, Donald Trump was going to Tulsa to have a rally, and there were many people who were offended that he would choose the anniversary of such a special holiday for black people uh, to uh, serve as his rallying cry for his re-election. But it also turns out, Beverly, that the next day, June 20th of 2020, was a very particular anniversary of importance as well. It was the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre. Yes. And, and many African Americans and many people in the country knew nothing about Tulsa. Tulsa was where African Americans, many of whom were prosperous members of the middle class, upstanding, and quite frankly, well off financially. Was that the Black Wall Texas. Street area? That's right, Black Wall Street, Beverly, mm -hmm. in Tulsa, Oklahoma set upon by a white supremacist mob, and over 300 African Americans were killed. There's excavation taking place today in Oklahoma, trying to identify a mass grave oh that African Americans may have been buried in. Well, Trump's visit to Tulsa, you know, shone a light on the uh, massacre of Tulsa, Oklahoma next year there will be a celebration of the centennial anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre. Well, that is one of the arguments that uh, we have made in support 
have a bill for reparations for African Americans because it demonstrates that even when we have struggled to attain wealth and recognition and equality in society, it can be brutally wiped out in a moment's notice by a white supremacist mob and without federal protection, our interests were destroyed. You saw that. And that's what it represented. And it's important that those anniversaries uh, not be forgotten, that they be cited in the long list of grievance that has brought us to where we are today. And without that understanding, people don't have a, a sense of how the experiences that African Americans have endured, the poverty, the systemic racism, the uh, blatant deprivation of rights and privileges that uh, many citizens now take for granted, uh, that needs to be revealed and documented. And that's why these two commissions are so important. And we think they need to be taught. You know, there's a controversy right now, Governor, about whether the California school system should use the 1619 Project, by the way, which was published by the New York Times. I should point out the Pulitzer Prize went to an African-American editor uh, by the name of Nicole Hannah-Jones. It was her concept of the 1619 Project that brought this into being, and the New York Times has fully supported it. Now, the New York Times is the gold standard when it comes to information in our society. California school system wants to use this project as a teaching device in California schools, and we have President Trump voicing his opposition to the use of that material and claiming that it's propaganda that will distort people's perceptions of what this country is all about. And nothing could be further from the truth. But it's an example of the kinds of things that are at stake, both in the election and in the policy debates of our time. Well, and, and the civil rights legislation of 1964 and the, the legislation that came after, that is at risk. It, oh, it, there is no doubt that I don't think people truly understand that the rights and privileges and benefits that many people of color, women, and people with disabilities enjoy could be repealed, could be withdrawn, taken away, eradicated, disappear, poof, with the stroke of a vote. I don't think they understand. Well, I think it's up to us, brother, to explain and to share the knowledge we have so that we can educate our own people and that our community understands what's at stake. Here's another example of that. You know, we talked about uh, this show focusing on voting rights. The right to vote is critically important. You know, voting is the language of democracy. If you don't vote, you don't count. And it's the only lawful way we have of bringing about significant political change. And so the Voting Rights Act was critically important for African Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans, persons with disabilities. Now, why is that? You all are, you know, we're all American citizens. Why do we need some special legislative device to protect our right to vote? Because the truth is, Beverly, that from the time the Civil War ended, when the passage of three important constitutional amendments took place over the next five years, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and the 15th Amendment, 
the 13th Amendment to the Constitution was the guarantee the end of slavery. of slavery as we knew it in this country and gave and ended that bondage under law. And that was an important declaration that African Americans needed uh, before they could enter into uh, the full body politic of the United States. The 14th Amendment guaranteed the right of birthright citizenship so that if you were born in this country, you were automatically considered a citizen. It gave you equal protection of the law, law. Mm -hmm. which meant that, you know, you were able to claim that you should be protected just like any other a citizen in the country. And it gave you due process of law to ensure that you were not deprived of your rights and privileges without a fair hearing. And then the 15th Amendment guaranteed the right to vote. Now, you know, we have struggled from the time those provisions were first adopted. There was a period of reconstruction in our country where African Americans for a very short period of time were given their full due and recognition as citizens. But that ended formally in 1877. And a darkness descended on the country uh, in the form of Jim Crow politics. Jim Crow is a idiomatic reference. It's a reference based on a vaudeville character who uh, was uh, depicted in a very dehumanizing way about black people. And it was the kind of reference that has since died out. But it's important, Beverly, that your listeners understand what it meant. And it meant that uh, the country instituted a period of so-called separate but equal mm -hmm. provisions which were never equal, and which denied black people in their most fundamental way their right to be citizens. And that period lasted from 1896, really from 1877, rather, huh. up through the uh, uh, Supreme Court decision in 1954. What is that, Brown versus Board of Education? Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have been in a struggle for equality from that time forward. Now, you mentioned the 64 Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act that followed 1965. Well, voting rights was needed because there were all kinds of efforts by white vigilantes and uh, sometimes by the states in which black people lived, particularly the old Confederacy, that would come up with various devices to deny black people the right to vote. And, and they were, I think, really, one might argue that they were ingenious in their uh, dedication to denying black people the right to vote. Literacy tests where you had to be able to read in order to cast a vote. Now, there's no requirement in the Constitution that that be the case. And it took advantage of newly freed former enslaved persons who had never been uh, given the right to read and write. Right. So, I mean, it was perfectly set up. Uh, for that purpose. And in fact, it was illegal. It was illegal to teach them how to read and write. That's exactly right. Though. Exactly right. So you had, you know, little tests like you had to uh, predict the number of bubbles in a bar of soap or to count the number of jelly beans in a jar. And if you got them wrong, you would deny the right to vote. You had to be able to inherit property from your grandfather. Well, you know, if you were enslaved, your grandfather couldn't pass on property to you. So, I mean, these were devices that were intended to deny black people their right to vote. 
and it wasn't until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that black people got some protection. Well, why do I mention that? Because the Supreme Court, Beverly, in 2013, we just talked about seven years ago, issued a decision in a case called Shelby County versus Holton that stabbed a knife in the heart of the Voting Rights Act and really made it immeasurably weaker than it was at the time it was passed in 1965. And we still haven't overcome that Supreme Court decision. Now, interestingly enough, before he died, Representative John Lewis worked with a number of members of Congress and civil rights groups and others to help devise a voting rights restoration bill, which Nancy Pelosi has now named after John Lewis. So the John Lewis Voter Restoration Act is now pending in Congress. It's already passed the House of Representatives, but it needs to pass the Senate. And Mitch McConnell, the Republican Majority Leader from Kentucky, stands in the way of making that happen. Well, why do I mention this? It's only because if we win an election, will that Voting Rights Act be restored? And the critical importance of that act is demonstrated every day when you see what states like Georgia and Indiana and other states that have voter ID laws or that have interceded in ways that have made it more difficult for people to vote. Well, they are still struggling. Let me ask you this. I think I read somewhere recently that Florida is now requiring ex-offenders who served their time and have been released to pay any outstanding fines and tickets before they will be allowed to vote. That's absolutely right. Now, you know, just a couple of years ago, three or four years ago, the voters of Florida considered a ballot referendum on whether to restore the right to vote to former felons who had served their time. The voters of Florida overwhelmingly approved that referendum. And we all celebrated uh, what a significant change that was, because it would have meant perhaps a million, a million African Americans would be newly added to the voting rolls. Well, uh, suffice it to say, some of the legislators, uh, legislators of the State House of Florida, uh, mostly Republican, uh, set up a new uh, provision that blocked that referendum uh, allowing these former felons to vote until they had paid whatever fines or penalties had been associated with their sentence. Uh, there were initial efforts to uh, make that null and void, but unfortunately it has been approved and the Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals that uh, has Florida within its jurisdiction, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, has upheld that provision. Only now, if the Supreme Court chooses to change it, is it likely to uh, be overturned. But because the Supreme Court is divided around voting issues on ideological lines, it is unlikely that the Supreme Court is going to step in and change that provision. Let me so ask yet again, we're going into the most important election in our lifetime with over a million African-Americans in Florida denied the right to vote. It's outrageous. Wait, if a person of means 
decided to make a, call it a charitable contribution and paid the fines for these people, would that be acceptable? Yes. Okay. Well, you know, some some people have money that they say they want to spend. They could spend it there. They certainly could. They certainly could. And that would make a difference. Let's hope that that happens. Well, let's hope that somebody brings it to their attention. uh, I I suspect it is. You see, Michael Bloomberg has already made a commitment of... That's who I'm talking about. $100 million uh, to uh, persuade uh, the Latino community in Guam to take a fresh look at uh, Joe Biden what's at stake. And I hope there are members who appreciate voters, members who appreciate the fact that the next president will probably determine the uh, majority of the Supreme Court for years to come. There are many, there are several Supreme Court justices that are on the verge of retirement, waiting to see who wins the presidential election. And the Honorable RBG deserves a break today. She deserves a rest. God bless her. Honorable RBG, who I remind you this, once taught at Rutgers Law. That's right. I had a full course, okay? (laughs) Remains the backbone of the, uh, uh, in my view, fair-minded division of the court. God bless so her. Let, let's hope she gets her support. Absolutely. Okay, wait. What can people do? Now, when I was growing up, the right to vote was sacrosanct. My grandfather taught his children and his grandchildren. You go to vote. People died so that you would have the right to vote. We haven't passed that information, that, that sense of obligation, that sense of privilege, of the need to stand up and be counted and be heard. What can we do to protect this right that seems to be threatened? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question, Beverly. Uh, let's start with the fact that we need to educate ourselves, not only about what's at stake, but about who is trying to prevent us from voting. You know, there are efforts underway to block black people from voting. Let's be clear about that. And people would not be working so hard to block that vote if it were not important. So ask yourself, uh, number one, who is trying to prevent you from voting and why? What's at stake? Number two, recognize that when you don't vote, that in effect is a vote for your opposition. When you decide not to go to the polls to vote, in effect you are casting a vote for your opposition. So, and look at a few of the examples of the things that are happening right now that would impact the vote. Now, let's start with the fact that we've got Kanye West running good on the ballot in several states around the country. And he's working and, and, and getting support from the Republican Party in various states to get on the ballot, Beverly. And why? Because it is perceived that Kanye will siphon off some votes that might otherwise go to Joe Biden and thus make it easier for Donald Trump to win. It's just a very clear, straightforward example. And poor Kanye. Kanye obviously has health issues. His wife has talked about that. It's quite obvious he has health issues. And yet, uh, his infirmity is being exploited by those who do not mean him a a very effective uh, campaign. They are doing it for ulterior motives. Uh, we have a tax right now on the postal service, brother. Postal service is under attack like 
never before to deprive people of their ability to cast ballots by mail. We've got Russian interference, Beverly. Russian government interference in our elections been documented by the national security apparatus of the United States. And yet we have a president who seems to ignore all of that, uh, who seems to be seizing on the distractions that have occurred in generally peaceful protests over the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. And his effort to use law and order as a motivational tool to push uh, white uh, uh, you know, conservatives, more conservatives, or suburban white women or others to the polls is a clear example of what's at stake. So black people need to wake up uh, and recognize that our interests have never been more threatened uh, in recent memory than they are right now. And that if we were to use our political power for change, it would elevate our ability to make demands on the government in ways that would immensely benefit all of us who are struggling uh, for the equality that the Constitution provides. So, yes, Beverly, uh, black people need to educate themselves. We need to do a better job in encouraging every vote to come up. Uh, and I'm so proud of the professional athletes uh, that have oh, yes. I'm, I'm so proud. Osaka, yeah. too. She shut tennis down. I don't know that she intended to do that, but when she said she wasn't playing, they said nobody's playing. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and let me just say, it, it makes a huge difference. I want to thank Naomi Osaka uh, for wearing the uh, yes. uh, you know, masks of people who have been armed, black people. Yes. Uh, it's an incredible speech. Each, a different one every day. Yes. Using her platform to bring about attention for change. So, no, I'm very proud of the Black Lives Matter movement. I see them as the inheritors of the John Lewis mantle uh, for change, getting in good trouble and yes. making that count to bring about the change we want. So, I don't have any, any doubt, Reverend, that we are on the cusp of a significant transformative change. But it begins by mobilizing all of our family, relatives, friends, colleagues, those who share our point of view, to come to the polls and cast those votes. It's necessary, and without that, none of the other changes that we want in the short term are possible. Well, Wade, I, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was so that I could share it with the young people uh, in my life who are hesitant to vote, um, and those who uh, have platforms that can be used to share the message that you've conveyed today. Um, we've got to get this out so that people will better understand why voting is so important. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we have to really show and demonstrate that we can make a difference. You know, I'm a big fan of Newark Mayor Ross Barack. Yes. I know that uh, I was in Newark when Ross Baraka's father, Amiri Baraka, uh, was a voice for social change. Uh, he was a voice of protest. Uh, but his son has grown up in a different system with a different mindset, and he uses the electoral process to make change. I think he's an outstanding man. And I have 
profound respect for what he's been able to do. It is progressives in the uh, city of North who are responsible for his election. He can make a difference. I, I looked at the uh, young sister who is uh, the, uh, the mayor of uh, Atlanta. Yes. Uh, who is yes. so phenomenal. Uh, these, these black men and women who have stepped up to take responsibility for leadership have made me so incredibly proud because they have done so with skill and, and uh, you know, strategic thinking and knowing how to deploy resources for change. We need more of that. And that is part of what this moment level in time presents. I, I think we are at such a pivotal moment for change brought about by this convergence of the pandemic and the disparate impact that it's had on people of color, black people in particular. The irony of all these black and Latino workers who have been called essential workers, quote unquote, doing tasks that no one else wants to do, but not being paid commensurate for the work and their contribution. That they have and the risk that they're taking. And the risk that they're taking. That's my point. You know, they need to be compensated differently, and it's up uh, to us uh, to make change. When I think about the massive unemployment and loss of wealth that has happened in this country and the devastating impact that it has had on the poorest among us, I'm heartbroken. I mean, the loss of that $600 a month in supplemental unemployment has had a devastating impact on thousands of families across the country, and many what Black and Latino suffer the most. All these are issues, Beverly, that uh, have, not, have got to be sorted out, but can't be sorted out until after the election. And that's why this is such a pivotal moment. And every vote counts. Well, I'm going to encourage my followers and my young people to use their platforms. I um, I interviewed someone that has 80,000 followers. I'm going to see if, if I can get him to... Um, to promote it, you know, it, it's it's a public service. It's a very good public service. It's a public I service. Hope, I hope your listeners will follow me on Twitter. Wait for justice. Wait for the number four justice. <laughs> you guys will follow me on Twitter because I try to highlight Beverly every day. Uh, some of the uh, you know injustices, the contradictions of American society, where our work is needed most. And uh, I think there is such an important opportunity to share information. This is the time to do that. I think information is critical. They, you know, I think people are making decisions based on either no information or limited information or inferior information, inaccurate. So that's another reason I want to do this. I'm doing another one on uh, prosecutors. A friend is a former prosecutor. I think a, a lot of people have a different, have a, have the wrong idea about what prosecutors do. At least the information needs to be put out there where they can examine it and yeah, come to any conclusion. Who are bringing a different perspective on issues of justice to the table. And I'm glad you're giving that some attention. Yes, I'm trying, Wade. I'm doing what I can. Sometimes they listen to me and sometimes they don't. But, you know, if I put it out there, it's up to them. 
But do you have anything else you want to share with our listeners? No, definitely. I, I'm, I'm just delighted that uh, you're using your podcast as a product for social change. I think that's critically important. I think um, educating a new audience of listeners who uh, obviously are hungry for elements to enhance change. I think that's exactly what we all should be doing. So I commend you for that. I think this is a very necessary step in bringing about the changes we'd like to see happen. Well, thank you, Wade. We do what we can. We do what we can. But I appreciate you taking the time out of what I know is your busy schedule. I am going to let you know when it will be posted so that you can circulate it. And I'm going to see if I can get some of the professional athletes to uh, post it on their websites. I have a contact that may be able to help me in that regard. But thank you so much. Thank you. And say hello to the ladies for me. I certainly will. Thank you, listeners, for me. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Your Employment Matters with Beverly Williams. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review. I truly appreciate your support and that helps other listeners find the podcast. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion, you can reach me at bawilliams at youremploymentmatters.com. My book, Get the Job Done, is available on amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Please join me again next week. Until then, remember to embrace change and differences. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.